God, we thank you that you've invited us to come and worship before you, not in fear or anxiety, but in freedom and in grace. And so we come to surrender all that we have to you and all that we are, recognizing that without your mercy and without your grace, there is nothing that we can do to accomplish anything good for your kingdom. And so we need your spirit and your love and your power. And as we empty ourselves in worship this morning, God, we, we come emptying ourselves at the hope that you will fill us, that you will fill us with your spirit and that you'll fill us with your word. And as we go from this place today, we will go knowing that we are forever changed because we've met with the living God this morning. And so we ask that you would speak to us now as we surrender our hearts and our minds and our wills to you. Give us a word that we each need to hear so that we can go following Jesus as his true disciples. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We are in week six of our series called The Way of Jesus. And if you have been joining us in our 50-day challenge, which is uh, the amount of time between Easter and Pentecost Sunday, that's what Pentecost means, is 50 days, uh, when uh, Jesus gifted the Holy Spirit and the the church was birthed, we are praying each day, uh, living with these parables of Jesus, seeking the way of Jesus in us, and hoping that his word will lead us to a a renewed understanding of the life of Christ in us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Uh, The way of Jesus is a study in the parables of Jesus, and today we're looking at the way of integrity. Now, if you look up integrity in the dictionary, the dictionary has a couple different definitions for integrity. The first one says the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles or moral uprightness. And when we think of a person who has integrity, this is probably what we first think of, right? We think of somebody who, who, who has a, a, the strength of their convictions and they stick to what they believe and they follow through on the things that they know to be right. But there's a second definition that for us today, I want to say is equally important. And I, what I think we'll see as we look into scripture today that in our relationship with Jesus, both definitions of integrity are necessary in order for us to understand what it really means for our relationship in Christ. And the second definition is this, that integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. The state of being whole and undivided. Something that is whole or is undivided is something that is integrated or has integrity as opposed to something that is disintegrated or lacking integrity. And from a biblical perspective, I believe that what we can see in the teaching of Jesus, that is we become more whole and undivided in our souls because of the healing work that Christ does in us, restoring us back to our true humanity that God had intended when he created this world, we begin to exhibit the ability to be more honest and to have stronger moral principles in our lives. And that if we get those backwards, if the expectation is that our behavior is going to precede the experience of healing, then we get off track and we realize that it's not something we can ever accomplish in our own strength. But if we understand the right order of healing that leads to wholeness, that leads to integrity, then we begin to understand this idea that the Christian life comes out of the overflow of the good things that God is doing in us through his healing work in Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the core issue at the core of Jesus' teaching in the parable of the sheep and the goats that we find in Matthew 25. 
Now, this is a longer passage, so we're going to read the whole story. So hang in there with me and let's just kind of soak in this parable of Jesus and maybe even imagine ourselves in that first century being in the crowd that is listening to Jesus tell these stories and wondering, what, what is he talking about and, and, and where do I fit in this story? What does this really do or mean for me in my relationship with God? He says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory, Son of Man is a, a biblical term for the Messiah, right? God's promised one who would come to save the world. And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger and needing of clothes or sick and in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is an uncomfortable parable. <laughs> Right? It's a little bit disquieting. It's convicting and it's penetrating. And if we're willing to sit with the story, it brings us to a place where we have to do some, uh, some careful self-examination to what exactly Jesus is talking about and where do we fit in this story, which is a precisely what Jesus desires. That's why he tells parables. And it's precisely what the Word of God is meant to accomplish in our lives if we're willing to let it do its work in us. See, honest self-examination and a willingness to be challenged by God's Word is where genuine spiritual growth begins to take place in us. And so Jesus begins this parable by saying that it concerns the Messiah's return at the, at the end of time, right? At the end of history, when the curtain is pulled back and the Son of Man comes in glory and he's seated on the throne of the heavenly kingdom of God and he's reigning as king, he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will sort out those who belong to him and those who don't belong to him. And using this analogy of a shepherd sorting sheep from goats, he says those who are found to be the sheep are the ones who belong to the shepherd. 
And they're invited to receive this inheritance that God had promised to his people, this eternal life with God that that would come through the gift of his son. And those who are found to be the goats, he says, are the ones who don't actually belong to the shepherd. And so they're separated from God's kingdom. They're relegated to to the ash heap of history. And so I want to suggest, first of all, from this parable that Jesus makes it patently clear that our choices in life have eternal consequences. And we know from Scripture that salvation through faith in the grace and the forgiveness that comes only through Jesus Christ is the only salvation that we as human beings will ever know and can ever find. However, I also want to suggest that it's important for us to understand this morning that in the context of this parable, Jesus is talking about sorting out those who claim to be a part of God's household but are not. Like the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, they grow up together until the harvest, Jesus said. Then they're sorted out and they're bundled and either brought into the barn or placed on the burn pile. But Jesus' teaching first and foremost here is that if this parable is for those of us who already claim to be in the family of God, those who belong to the shepherd as part of God's family. Right? It can be really easy for us to assume that, that as Christians, we're the in-group, right? And those who aren't Christians, they're in the out-group. That we're the sheep and they're the goats, but that's to miss the point of Jesus' parable. Jesus is telling us that we need to always be willing to, to do an honest self-examination of our own hearts and to demonstrate a willingness to be challenged by God's word in order for our own genuine spiritual growth to be occurring because that genuineness comes not because you have believed in a propositional truth and therefore you make it. Jesus says it comes from having a real and abiding relationship with the living God that transforms your life from the inside out. And this is the evidence that proves that truth. And so Jesus goes on to describe the type of evidence that the Son of Man will be looking for in order to make such a determination when he sits in judgment. And in the story, Jesus uses six examples. Six commendations for the sheep, and it's the same six examples that he uses as the criticism for the goats. And some scholars suggest that this number six in the Bible is a symbolic number of humanity. God's number is seven. It's the number of completion. And so the number of six is the number of man, and it indicates what the relationship with God looks like from the human side, what our responsibility is if we are in an abiding relationship with the living God. According to Jesus, if we're really to follow the greatest command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, which leads to the second command, which is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves, he says this is what that relationship will look like from the human side. And so we can go and look and we can see the list includes providing food for those who are hungry providing water for those who are thirsty, hospitality for strangers, or, or more accurately, according to biblical history, it's hospitality for foreigners, 
right? It's those people who, who weren't Jewish or Israelite people who were traveling through the land or living in the land. And God had told these people early on that the way they treated foreigners among them was a, was a part of their relationship with God and spoke to, to how they understood God's love for them, right? Leviticus 19.34 says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And he says those clothing, providing clothing for the naked, which could mean someone is completely naked, right? I mean, that's what you first think of. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Looking for fig leaves. <laughs> but it can also mean providing for somebody a shirt or a coat, somebody who's needing protection from the elements. They don't quite have all the resources they need to survive in life. And so you come along and you provide for them the clothing that they need to be able to be protected and to live life. Matthew 5, 40, Jesus said, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Right? And there's this idea that, 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 that we have this generosity of spirit that goes beyond the, the legal requirements of the law of what we have to do to earn God's favor, to earn our way to heaven, but to live open-handedly and generously because that's how we've seen God has lived, treated us in his Jesus. And then he says, visiting those who are sick and those who are in prison. Uh, you know, in Jesus' day, there was no medical industry. The sick were either taken care of by their friends and family, or they were forgotten and abandoned and left to die on their own. Similarly, those who found themselves in prison were provided very little food or water. There was no prison system that, that had, uh, you know, prisoners' rights and, and people coming in to evaluate the human treatment of the people who were being imprisoned. They were treated like animals. They were given minimal food and clothing and bedding, and they didn't even have basic sanitation. And so prisoners in ancient times were often dependent upon their family and friends to pay for and provide for their needs. And then, as is true today, being in prison can be a lonely, depressing, and dehumanizing place to be. We lock them away and we forget them. And identifying with a prisoner in this way could easily arouse suspicion of one's social and political standing, right? It'd be seen as sympathizing with somebody who's an enemy of the state. As an example, we can see how grateful the Apostle Paul was, right? He was in and out of prison all the time for sharing the gospel. And he always expressed gratitude in his letters when his friends would come and visit him and help provide for his needs. In Philippians 4, verses 18 and 19, he says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the help he received while he was in prison. Right? Probably food, clothing, water, a pillow. <laughs> And so essentially, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying that loving God and loving neighbor is more than just a theological proposition that we choose to believe is truth or not. It's more than just warm wishes and abstract applications. Rather, it's a genuine love for God and a love for neighbor that demonstrates itself in very real, practical, and personal ways. 
as God's people develop a heart to see the world around them through the eyes of Jesus, they're motivated to respond with the same compassion that God has for us when he looks at his lost and his broken and his hurting world who he sent his son Jesus to give everything to be able to save. And so while God definitely calls us to love all people, He is first and foremost talking about loving one another in the family of God and responding to the real needs that we see day in and day out that are right around us, right where we are. And that's why Jesus said, "Whatever when he said, whatever you did, you did to the, to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He means when you reach out and you serve one another as members of the family of God, you're living out your relationship with Jesus in ways that allow you to begin to be who you are on the inside, on the outside. And that's when we begin to experience a life of integrity and wholeness when who we are on the inside is the same person that we are on the outside. And if we say that we are a Christian and that we're a follower of Jesus and we've been saved by the mercy and the grace and the love of God, but we don't know how to provide that same kind of grace and mercy for those around us, are we really the same person on the inside that we claim to be as we are on the outside? And Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So Jesus is here first and foremost talking about the kind of community that we're pursuing together as the church and the kind of people we are in the community that we say we belong to. As we begin to live out the integrity of our faith and what we say we believe, it's in our relationships with one another, Jesus says, that we'll see the evidence of whether that's actually true or not. And the more we live out our love for Jesus in our relationships with one another and those who are most needy among us, the more we become a compelling Christian community that the world sees has something different than the way that the world operates, that has a different set of priorities, that has a different set of expectations about what it means to be successful, and they begin to see a real-life example of the good news of Jesus lived in real-life community, not just spoken from the pulpit. (laughs) And so in this sense, we cannot separate discipleship from evangelism. They're not two different things. It's part of the same whole. Disciples are those who, by nature uh, of who they have become in Christ, live lives of sacrificial generosity with one another and extend love and care to the needy around them, and in so doing, become a testimony of this good news of Jesus, which is what evangelism is all about. It's not going door to door and knocking on the door and saying, you know, can I tell you about the four spiritual laws? It's knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, How can I help you? What do you need? Can I pray for you? Do you know God loves you? And I love you too. It's really as simple as living in genuine relationship with one another, and yet we get so wrapped around the axle about our theology and what we, uh, you know, our different brands of Christianity and who's right and who's wrong, but we miss the very point of why Jesus gave his life to begin with. Three quick takeaways for us today, and then I want to take some extra time to, to celebrate communion today as well. It is Communion Sunday. 
The first takeaway I want to suggest that we can take from the parable of the sheep and the goats is that good works are not the cause of salvation, but the effect of salvation. Right? Good works are not the cause of salvation, but the effects or the evidence of salvation, as Jesus is saying. On the surface of the parable, it seems like the sheep acted charitably by giving food and drink and clothing, visiting those in prison and the needy, while the goats showed no charity. And so it seems to result is that they earned salvation by doing good deeds, and those who didn't do good deeds did not earn salvation. They earned eternal punishment. But a deeper reading of the story tells us that we've been saying that the good works are simply the evidence of the true identity that the sheep belong to the shepherd. This is seen by the fact that both the sheep and the goats were surprised by the judgment they received, right? Their service to Jesus was so natural and normal through their relationships with the people around them that they weren't even aware that they had even done anything worthy of commendation. They're like, huh, when, when did we serve you, Jesus? When were we doing good deeds? We were just living out of our heart of compassion to be good people and to love those around us. But that was actually a part of what it means to worship. That's a part of what it means to be a disciple. That's a part of our relationship with you is how we treat other people. <laughs> And so the core message of the parable of the sheep and the goats is that God's people will love others in real and practical ways, not because they do so in order to merit eternal life or to be a good church person or, or, or to somehow say that I need to be a good Christian so I have to check off my do-gooder list this week. <laughs> Rather, Jesus is saying that love and good works result out of the overflow of the time spent living in the presence of the shepherd because it's the love of the shepherd that, that, that he gives to us that then we cannot help but give away to other people. If God has forgiven me for the things that I know that I've done and he still loves and accepts me and he meets me in my place of greatest need and my deepest darkness, how can I then not offer that to others as well? And how can I not want them to know that God wants to give that, those gifts to them also? The sheep are not sheep because they do good deeds, nor are goats because, goats because they fail to do good deeds, but rather the, the doing of the good and the failing the two good is precisely because of the character of who they have become or not become in Christ. Popular Christian preacher Charles Spurgeon says, what the sheep have done seems to them too faulty to be commended. The saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to do it. They did it because it was their delight to do good, and it was as much their element as water for a fish or air for a bird. They did good for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for someone else in the name of Jesus. That Jesus is talking to believers, <laughs> I want to suggest, can also be evidenced by a lot of these other teachings that he's given, right? We mentioned the tree and the fruit earlier, Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are 
ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so we begin to see that our second takeaway for today is that the way of Jesus becomes the way of integrity as we experience the reunification of our inner life with our outer life. As our faith begins to reflect itself in action, we begin to be a unified believer because our relationship with God actually leads to a changed lifestyle of blessing others in Jesus' name. Our beliefs and our behaviors, our heart and our actions in Jesus' love that was or disintegrated by the sin of the world is reunited and reintegrated into a wholeness that comes from his healing grace in us that gives us the freedom and the joy to give that same love away to others. Our own souls and our own spirits are woven back together through his healing love to create a new humanity that bears a Christ-likeness in the world that gives us the spiritual strength and the power to love others in this way, not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is. And as we're slowly being put back together by God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the great shepherd of the sheep, it's the very reintegration of our own souls that results in our ability to live this kind of walk of love that Jesus invites us to walk as his disciples. And to walk in love then, as Christ commanded, also requires an infilling of the presence of the Spirit of Christ with us. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides and leads and directs and empowers us to fulfill this calling in our lives so that we can begin to see the world around us through the eyes of Christ. And we begin to respond to the world around us with the compassion of Christ. And we begin to love others in the name of Christ through the power of God's Spirit working in us. That's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. And Jesus is saying, if you love one another, you've got to show it. You can't just say it, you got to show it. And we become people of integrity as followers of Jesus when we simply begin to live out what we believe and what we say we've come to know through the love of Jesus by demonstrating that in our relationships with those around us. In this sense, the vertical and the horizontal relationships of our religion, loving God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, become two sides of the same whole. They are integrated so that our worship of the Heavenly Father becomes a lifestyle that's lived in the practical relationships of those who share faith in Jesus Christ. And together, through demonstrating that love, we become a testimony of the truth of the presence of God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom on earth is a kingdom that begins in your heart and in mine. And so that leads us to the third and the final takeaway. The question Jesus is saying is no longer what, but who. The question is no longer what, but who. 
The question is not, what does God expect you to do in order to be acceptable to him? The question is not, what does God expect you to do in order to earn his favor? The the question is not, what does God expect you to do to be considered a good church person? The question is not, what do you have to do in order to avoid eternal punishment? The question is no longer what. The question is who. Who is God calling you to serve? Who are the people around you whose basic human needs for love and decency and respect and food and clothing and a cup of cold water on a parched, dreary, hot day are the ones who are right in your path that you can love instantly without having to earn a psychological degree or a theological degree or to have a professional office in the church in order to be considered someone who has a calling in their life? God calls us to serve real people with real names and real faces, and they're all around you every day. The problem is we get so focused on the what of Christianity that we forget that Jesus calls us to focus on the who. Who is God calling you to serve today? And whom, as you see the world around you, as you pass through this world, as you go to work, as you go to the grocery store, as you sit in the restaurants, as you have your coffee at Starbucks, who do you see through the eyes of Christ that may be a person in need, that you have a gift to bless them with, that maybe you didn't even realize, but maybe God would call you to be a blessing to them? Can we as a faith community begin to see with new eyes of faith that in the face of others we can begin to see the face of Jesus? And that in those whom God might be calling us to love and to serve, we we don't focus anymore on the the values of the world, on who's the popular person or or who's the person in power or who who has the position that we want to come and talk to and give them our time and give them our attention to forget the people who are the least of these among us. This is the part of the motivation that I've seen over the years in churches that that give people a heart of compassion to actually want to serve in kids' ministry or to serve on the, the student ministry team. You understand the time and the sacrifice it takes to give yourself to, to invest in the lives of kids and the lives of students who are in desperate need of someone to, to see value in them and to, know, to help them to know that they're loved and that there's hope in this lost and this hurting world. or to serve on the visitation team or the prayer team who's willing to go into a hospital or go to a a care home to visit people who can't go to church and to just be the gift of a caring presence with them. Jesus is saying that is a more significant ministry than anything that Kurt's doing on the platform on Sunday morning because it's meeting the direct need of the who that God is calling you to serve. And that's the evidence of the kingdom of God among you. Even if you don't immediately see a need, are we willing to pray and ask God to bring people into our path? I remember one uh, summer we were at the uh, Mission Springs campground. We were there for a retreat. It's the Covenant Camp down in uh, California in the Bay Area. 
And I was kind of a, a young adult at that point. I was there with my parents, but they were staying in another cabin. I had my own cabin because I was an adult. And, and, and at that point, you know, I was, wasn't interested in going to bed at 9 o'clock like all the other adults were. So it was, you know, 11, 11.30, and I'm out walking around the campground, and I, you know, I, I was at a season of my life where I just felt like God was real, and I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I just felt spiritually alive, and I just, I felt motivated to sit there on this bench in the middle of this kind of park area, and I, I just felt motivated to say, pray, God, send me somebody to serve. Send me somebody to serve. I want to serve you, but I don't know who. Send me somebody to serve. Wouldn't you know it? Within 10 minutes, a young woman who was about 17 came walking by, and I said, hey. She said, hey. <laughs> and I said, how are you? She said, I'm not good. And I said, I'm sorry. What's going on? And she began to share her heart that she was in a broken place and she was in a dark place and she didn't have any hope. She didn't even know if God was real anymore. And I was able to be the light of Christ to her to say, you know what? I just prayed 10 minutes ago that God would send somebody that I could be a blessing to. I think God knows exactly where you are and exactly what you're going through. And I just want to encourage you in that. What a blessing, right? And I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just prayed and I just was honest and I offered the gift of a cold cup of water to a thirsty pilgrim who was hoping to find something of sustenance in a dry and a weary land. What we learn from the parable of the sheep and the goats is that good works are not the cause of salvation but the effect of salvation. And that the way of Jesus becomes the way of integrity for us in our lives as we begin to experience through our time spent with Jesus the reunification and the healing of our souls so that our inner life and our outer life become part of the same life. And when we begin to live in a spiritually empowered way, the question no longer becomes what, but it becomes who. Who is God calling you to serve today? Who do you have eyes to see as you leave today and as you go about your life this week that God might want to bring into your path? Or are you willing to even pray the prayer, God, bring me somebody to serve? Because I guarantee you, if you humbly and honestly pray that prayer and you wait for God's timing, He will bring somebody. He is waiting for us to be willing to love in this way. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians 6, 9 to 10. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. <laughs> Think about that, right? Let us not become weary in doing good. It should be the opposite. Doing good should be the exciting, motivating reason for our faith and for being a part of church and for being a Christian. And yet, over time, it can become burdensome and wearisome. Then, oh my gosh, we have to think about the needs of others and who's going to take care of me and when do I get what I want? <laughs> Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will receive or reap the harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household 
of faith. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and patience and love. And, and in this parable of the sheep and the goats, God, it is, it is convicting and it's penetrating and it challenges us to really examine our own lives. And whether we're living as people of integrity, where the inside of our life and the outside of our life are unified into a whole by the healing of your spirit so that the love that we experience from you is actually the love that we give away to the world around us. As we come to the holy feast of communion today, God, we ask for your forgiveness and your grace for the ways that we have short-circuited the intent of your mercy and your grace in our lives to be a, a channel of that love to others. God, reignite a passion in us to, to be able to share that love and those good works with those that you might send to us as a way of seeing that we are living out a vital and a real faith in you through the relationship with those that you give us, the people to love and to serve. And God, in a world that prizes youth and strength and beauty and popularity and power and politics, God, would you help us to turn our eyes from all those things and to, to look to see those who are the least of these among us. Those who are in need of a fresh cup of cold water. Those who are literally in need of food and clothing. God, those who are sick and those who are in prison, help us to see that those aren't just spiritual analogies, God, but those are real people who need your love and your grace in our lives. God, give us a vision for what the church can be in the 21st century that isn't just about the what, but really becomes about the who. And then give us your power and your strength and your spirit to even in our frailty and our brokenness and our sin, because we're not going to ever get it perfect, but to be able to have the courage and the strength to give what we can and trust you to multiply it for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.